and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf and having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing in our series on Hebrews. And throughout this whole book, we've seen so many powerful truths that have hopefully started to sink into our hearts. The truth that Jesus is better, better than Moses and the prophets, better than the high, any high priest. In fact, he's the ultimate high priest and the ultimate sacrifice. Last week, we focused on our need of milk for us to grow, good spiritual milk, the beautiful life-giving milk of the gospel, how we need to rest in that, sit in that, drink of it. Well, today we're diving into a difficult text. It's a text like, it's texts like these that make um, me not like the type of preaching we do here at Waypoint Church. So at Waypoint, we do um, more expository style, kind of books of the Bible, going through the whole book style of preaching. It's texts like these that make me not wish we did that. I kind of sometimes wish like, oh, if we did topical style preaching, I would never preach on this text. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where like, you know, there's text about judgment and harsh words and you're just kind of like, ugh, I don't want to preach on that. That sounds harsh. I want everybody to be happy and smile all the time. I'm a people pleaser. So I want everybody to always be like, oh, that felt good. Yay. That's the kind of sermons I like to preach on. I like people coming out of there and be like, that's a good message. I'm happy about that. Let's get out of here. But difficult text. I was that close to being like, all right, Danny, Josh, you guys preach on this one. I, like, as if I wasn't sure what text this was. Oh, this just so happened to be this text. 
guess you guys got to do it. So that was seriously that close to doing it because this is a difficult text to preach on. I was even close to making Eric preach on this text for his first time ever preaching. I mean, talk about throwing somebody into the deep end. I, I really was. I was like, Eric, you want to try a really hard one? You know, I make it sound like it's fun. Like, Eric, you want to try a really hard text? It'd be fun. You know, I felt like Tom Sawyer trying to get somebody to paint the fence, you know? Because it's a difficult text, and I'll tell you why. This is one of the great warning passages of Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, and it says it again in Hebrews chapter 10. It's the two most kind of terrifying warning passages of Scripture. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in London, England, that said that he had seen over the course of 35 years of ministry more Christians caused to struggle with their assurance because of misunderstanding this passage than perhaps any other passage of Scripture. He said, It's not that this is the hardest passage in Scripture to interpret. It's not. There are other passages that are harder to interpret than this one. It's that this passage of Scripture has had a unique power when misunderstood to unsettle the hearts of believers. It's a very difficult passage. Partly it's difficult um, because respected Protestant interpreters have disagreed on how to interpret this passage. Some interpret this passage very differently than the way I do and the way others do. They see this passage, one passage, that shows that believers can lose their salvation. That's something that those of us who are kind of more reformed in our theology and belief don't accept. We believe in a concept, and I'll share it with you, it's called the perseverance of the saints. That once you have been redeemed by Christ, you have trusted in Him for salvation, you have been united to Him by the work of the Holy Spirit, nothing can separate you, nothing can snatch you away. I like to say it this way, there is nothing you did that was able to earn your salvation. There's nothing you did that was able to make you get it or earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. But this is one of the passages where many people disagree. This passage is a hard passage because it says some of the things that are hard to understand. And honestly, it's kind of hard to swallow. It forces you to do the hard work of personal, spiritual inventory. You really, it's hard to get into this text and be like detached from it. It's hard to hear warnings of something that seems very close to this idea of losing your salvation to be like, it's not for me. It's not about me. It causes even those of us who go to church to stop and take stock. That's what I want us to do today. To study spiritually is rather draining because it requires you to do a heart examination. My people, this is the word of God and he means it for the good of our souls. And if we don't want to downplay the warnings here, nor do we want to ignore, though, the encouragement that the author is saying here. We must remember that the author of Hebrews is not aiming to unsettle the assurance of true believers. He's not sitting in his study and being like, hmm, what can I say to these young Christians to make them doubt their salvation? That's not his attempt. That's not his goal. He's giving real warnings. They come in the context of people in this congregation that are considering turning their backs on Jesus, leaving the Christian church, and going back to Judaism. You guys remember what I said before when we talked about Melchizedek, right? You know, these are young Christians who came out of the sect of Judaism, and here they are, the Jews are coming up to them, they're suffering persecution, they're, they've been going through hard times, so they're kind of immature in their faith right now, and the Jews are coming up to them, and they're saying, hey, whoa, whoa, we got some political pressure we're going to put on you, but also intellectually, how do you say Jesus is a priest? He's not from the tribe of Levi, Right? 
So then all of a sudden, the author of Hebrews is saying, whoa, whoa, they're trying to argue this. Bam, he's from Melchizedek. See, the author of Hebrews is not trying to be like, guys, you're going to lose your salvation. He's trying to say, guys, get this. Don't turn to Judaism. Don't turn your back on the truth that you're hearing. Here's Jesus. Do you get that? This is the context. And the warnings are being given specifically into that situation. He's not dealing necessarily with sincere Christians who are struggling with their sin. Different issue. He's dealing with the issue of renouncing their confession of Christ Um, whether actually or even functionally. And the warning is simply this, to renounce Jesus is to step across a line that you don't want to step across. So here's the thing, I don't want true believers in here today to inappropriately be discouraged by this passage. I don't want any of us to mess up and miss the warning. There's two things I don't want you to do. One, I don't want you to sit here and be discouraged if you're a true believer. And two, I don't want us to downplay, though, the weightiness of this warning. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? So I'll go ahead. I'll, before we dive into it, I want us to look at a little bit of the outline of a short little part of the scripture, verses 4 through uh, 12. Verses 4 and 6, he gives a warning. It's a warning against falling away. And then in verses 7 through 8, he gives an illustration of both being fruitful and fruitfulness, or fruitlessness. His point is simply this. You cannot have faith in Christ and not have fruit. And you cannot be faithless towards Christ and have fruit. Verses 7 and 8 are an illustration of this principle. He's saying you can look at a person's life and you can see what really animates them. It's like what Jesus meant when he said to the Pharisees and to his own disciples. What comes out of a man's heart is the issue of his, his, comes out of his heart is what comes out. What's in his heart is what comes out in life and speech. In other words, you can look at a way long term, not short term. Long term, you can see, if you see fruit in a person's life, long term, that should be a sign that that person is following Jesus. But if there's long term fruitlessness, then there's a question, because somebody who knows Jesus will be animated by Jesus, will be moved by Jesus, will be transformed by Jesus. Now, can I say this I'm with a caveat here? There's, it is not on us individually to judge other people's salvation. Can you hear me say that again? Did you hear that? It is not on us individually to be like, oh, so this is saying that I need to be looking at people and be like, let me see your fruit. No fruit? Nah, you don't know Jesus. Get out of here. That's not on us. That's not our job. That's not your job. That's not my job. Do you hear me when I say that? This is not saying that. This is not being like giving you ammunition to judge other people. What this is saying is to look at your own life. To look at your own life and saying, are you bearing fruit? Does the gospel animate you? Does, does the gospel message move you? Are you in love with Jesus? Are you bearing fruit? Because if you're bearing thorns and thistles, you need to be doing a really hard evaluation. You guys with me? But if Jesus animates you, if he moves you, then you can be assured of your salvation. If you're bearing fruit, long-term fruit, you can say, I can stand sure that Jesus is my anchor in the darkest and most difficult of times. I am his, he is mine. There's nothing that can separate me from that. You guys with me so far? I want to keep on saying that, you guys with me so far, because it's a difficult text, so I don't want to lose you guys in the middle of it here, okay? Our life is a witness to our faith. And the author of Hebrews is doing this, especially in this context, because the people who openly turn their backs on Jesus and leave are showing something that's going on in their heart issue. 
So then you look at verses 9 through 12. He turns it into an encouragement. So there's a warning in 4 through 8, and then 9 through 12, it's an encouragement. And this word of encouragement is especially an encouragement for us to be diligent and to pursue assurance in Christ. So we've been warned about against falling away from Jesus. Illustration of that. And then in 9 through 12, we have encouragement. So as we look into these two parts, the warning you'll find in verses 4 through 8 with the illustration of the warning in verses 7 through 8. So let's look at that first part, verses 4 through 6, really quickly first. He's telling us of the danger of rejecting Jesus. The author of Hebrews does not want us to underestimate this danger, of, of, of the danger of, to our souls of turning our backs on Jesus. So he says, don't turn your back on Jesus because there's no other hope of salvation. So if you look at what he's been arguing up to all this whole point, really all the way up to chapter 5, verse 10, the author of Hebrews has been saying Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's the best and only Savior that can, we could possibly have. Now, he's up to this point in this warning section. He's saying, if that is who Jesus is, We've established it. He's better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than the sacrificial system. Now, are you turning back to that? If you turn your back, if you go back to that, but we've established already that he's better than all of it, what's the consequence? And the author of Hebrews is saying the consequences is curse. The consequence is separation. Because if you turn your back on Jesus, who is the better Savior, there's no sacrifice for sins remain. No hope of salvation remains. And so his warning here is for us not to turn our backs on Jesus because there's no other hope of salvation apart from him. They're saying he's better than the Old Testament system. He's better than the high priest. He's actually made the high priest null. And there's no point in it anymore. There's no point in this temporary thing because he's the ultimate high priest. So if you go back to what it was, there's no hope for you in salvation. So as we dive into this pastor, it's, it's, this passage is challenging because the author of Hebrews is warning against apostasy, namely against falling away from the truth. It is impossible, it says, in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now that language is profoundly Christian language, isn't it? Right? The whole part of the sentence has to do with the work of the Spirit and believers. It's it enlightened Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. So he says, for those who have been enlightened, for those who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Again, this is a picture of God pouring out his gift of his spirit and those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. This is profoundly Christian language. And then look at verse 5. It says, and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So he uses strong language, Christian language, to describe the congregation. So is he then saying that real Christians inhabited by the regenerating Holy Spirit can fall away? I'll say no. And let me argue it in two ways for you. If you see here, the key point of this argument, the thing on which this argument turns, is found in the next verse. So look at verse 6 real quick. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt, up to contempt. In other words, whatever qualities these people possess... They are turning their back on Jesus. And thus they are, as it were, joining kind of the mockers in the crowd who mocked him and denied who he was. Do you guys remember when Jesus was crucified, the Romans had put over Jesus' head a sign? Do you guys know what the sign said? Do you remember? King of the Jews, right? 
They mocked him. And he's saying, if you, what the author of Hebrews is saying is if you reject Jesus, if you reject him, if you stop believing, if you turn your back on Jesus, you have positioned yourself in the crowd, mocking Jesus, holding him in contempt. If you look at a parallel passage, turn over with me if you guys will. I'll give you time to get there. I'm sorry I didn't tell the, the AV team over there to do this yet. But uh, Hebrews chapter 10. So if it's, it might not be on the screen, but if you guys have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll give you a second. It's only a couple pages. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And then we look on down to verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? They're really good back there. Good job. It's clear that their attitude toward Jesus is the fundamental thing that the author of Hebrews is getting at. In other words, these people have come to a point where they think that they can have God but reject Jesus. Remember the temptation for a lot of these people are to turn back to or towards Judaism. That is trying to have God without Jesus. I can have God, I can have the blessings of God, but I can reject Jesus. That's what Judaism is going back to, is what they're saying is, okay, we heard about Jesus, we've been a part of Christian community, we've been receiving the benefits of this Christian community, but the, the Jews are coming and they're putting all this political pressure on us, intellectual pressure on us, and they're now saying, I can go back and have that relationship communion with God apart from Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you cannot. That if you think that you can have God and reject Jesus, you're sitting in the seat of damnation. If you're confident of your communion with God and you have rejected Jesus, you are deceived. And that's the warning that's being given here. It all turns on the attitude towards Jesus, on the heartfelt faith and understanding of who Jesus is. So does this mean that at one time they were truly united to Jesus and that they lost their union with Jesus? No. Again, let me turn to you a parallel passage. And can I tell you guys this? One thing about a key to interpreting Scripture. Hear me very well on this. Uh, you can take any text out of context and make you think, say whatever you kind of want it to say. Right? One of the most confusing things is when you read Scripture and you read that one piece of Scripture and everybody says, see, it's in the Bible. Right? And you read it by itself and it seems to say one thing. Right? But the way you read Scripture is that you use the whole counsel of Scripture. Can I say that again? That the way you interpret Scripture correctly is by using the whole counsel of Scripture, the whole meta-narrative of Scripture, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, and using the whole counsel of Scripture to understand a point or an idea. So, for example, if you read one piece of Scripture and it seems to say one idea that maybe has never been said before, it's contrary to the whole counsel, and you're like, oh, see, it says it in Thessalonians, it says this. Can I tell you you're probably wrong in your interpretation? I'm just going to say that, Right? We have to use the whole counsel of Scripture to understand Scripture. So if you guys will, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. I'll be so impressed. Oh, they're so good back there. Similar situation that is happening to the church that John is writing to. He's speaking about Antichrist people who are teaching things in place of Christ. In other words, he's people who are teaching us messages or lessons contrary to who Jesus is. That's what the Antichrist were. Then it says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. He's talking about people who have left the congregation because they've been following the teachings of these antichrists, plural. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This is a brilliant, short description of what has happened in that congregation. Some people have followed after the false teachings of the Antichrist, and they have gone out from us. In other words, they have renounced their association with that Christian congregation. But John says this, And when they went out from us, we discovered that they, though that they once were of us, now they are no longer of us. In other words, though they were once true believers, he's not saying though they were once true believers, now they've lost their salvation. That's not what John says. John says, they went out from us, and thus we found out that they were never of us. In other words, John is saying a true believer couldn't turn his back on Jesus. A true believer couldn't reject Jesus Christ. A true believer couldn't say, I'm going to have communion with God, and in fact, I do have communion with God, and I reject Jesus. You see, it all turns on Jesus. This is not about true believers in Jesus ceasing to be believers anymore. This is about people who make a profession to be a believer in Jesus. This is about people who make a profession that turns out to be false. The language of Hebrews 6, 4, and 5 is a language that is designed to speak of the blessings that we have in the Christian community. I want you to understand this. There are blessings in the Christian community that, we, that are huge, that are not just for believers, right? Because here's the reality. In every church you go to, not every single person is a believer. Can, can we all agree to that? Nod our heads and say yes to that, right? More than likely, not everybody in every church you go to is a Christian believer. But in Christian community, there are blessings you receive, right? You receive love and care. You should at least, right? You receive being prayed over, your children being looked after. You receive the incredible benefit of holy communion. And this is actually what I believe that scripture actually means when they've tasted of the heavenly things. They were actually part of membership of a church community. They actually partook in the grace of communion together. In other words, these were people who have partaken in the, in the church community, community life, received the benefits of being a part of a church. Their kids were loved and prayed for. There's so many blessings that come from being a member of a church community. But they still never truly had saving, knowing faith in Jesus. This is one of the most chilling verses in the Bible. It talks about, you know, that one day you're going to come up to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. Don't you know me? I did all this stuff for you. You know me, right? And Jesus is going to look at that person and say, I don't know you. I've never known you. That's a chilling verse. And can I just say that verse, in my opinion, is a verse for especially the Bible Belt culture of America. Right? That's a verse for those who so often say, hey, I I know Jesus. Um, I'm I'm American, right? (laughs) Doesn't that make me a Christian? Right? I mean, that, there's so many people who think that way. This is a verse, a chilling verse for some of us who, well, I go to church, right? Who is it that said this? I can't remember. Somebody said, I don't remember where. But it's like saying that going to church makes you a Christian is like saying being in a garage makes you a car. <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way. And there's so many people who their whole lives, they might have started in the church and received communion in the church. They might have received the songs and the fellowship and the blessings and, and the love and the community and the prayer and all this stuff. Grew up in the church their whole life, but they don't know Jesus. It's a sad reality. And this is a spiritual heart check for the people who are reading this. 
They're saying, guys, no Jesus. It's not about the blessings of community. It's not about the blessings of being in the church body. Do you know Jesus? Because you need to. It's possible to sit under the faithful preaching of the word and not believe in Jesus and not put your trust in him. It's not the fault of the children's ministry or the youth ministry or the, the preacher or the leaders of the church. It's a matter of the heart. Who do you trust? Where are you putting your faith? What do you really believe? The author of Hebrews is saying that these people that are turning their back on Jesus are sure that they never ever got it because you can't turn your back on Jesus and still have a sacrifice for sin that remains. This is a word of warning for us. I'll give you a couple other verses just to show you the, uh, the reality of, of what I mean by you can't lose your salvation. John 6, 37 through 39 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, but I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they will follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. These are just more verses I wanted to give you to confirm and show you that the counsel of Scripture says that there is perseverance of the saints. Maybe you know people like I do who have been hurt by life, burned by the church, or didn't have their expectations in God met. Maybe Christians let them down. Maybe they were betrayed by people who professed Jesus. They've been a part of the church. And maybe it was a part of all the good things that happened. They were a part of your youth group. And then in their youth group, they were the leader. They were awesome. But then they went off to college and they no longer believe in Jesus. Maybe they've chosen to walk away. They want nothing to do with Christianity. Maybe they're thinking, I've tried this whole Jesus thing. I still want God, but Christianity doesn't work for me. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. He's saying, you can't just walk away from Jesus and there not be eternal consequences. I'm not excusing the church or circumstances. I'm just saying that we really mess things up, but that's not a reason to walk away from Jesus. Jesus is the one person you don't want to walk away from. And the author of Hebrews is simply pleading with these folks in the congregation, don't do it. Don't do it. Guys, can I tell you this? And I don't know where you're at right now in your heart and in your journey. Maybe you're sitting here and maybe you come here because somebody just said, hey, you need to come with me to church. Maybe you're sitting here because you've grown up in church, walked away, hated everything to do with church, but somebody dragged you here again. I'll say this to you. Maybe the church has let you down. It probably has, and it probably will. I'll say this to all of you sitting in here. This church will let you down. I will definitely let you down. But our faith in God is not built upon the church, and upon the people in it, and definitely not upon me. It's built upon Jesus as our foundation. Hey, can I tell you this, people? Can I just tell you this? You can, you can say that churches let me down, all these people let you down, but you cannot miss this. Hear this warning. Do not walk away from Jesus. Don't do it. 
Because he is your only means of salvation. Because he is the only way for you to truly stop living a life that that comes apart of earning salvation, earning righteousness, or earning being good enough. He is the only way where you can stop wearing masks, where you can stop trying to fake who you are. He is the only way that you can be truly known and loved and live with purpose. Do not walk away from that. I I know so many bad things have happened to you in church, I'm sure. And it's unforgivable, some of the stuff that's probably happened to some of you. But that is not Jesus. That is sinful people. If anything, it shows you even more so how much we need Jesus. Do you hear that? Those terrible things that have happened to you guys, I know it's, they, they exist, but can I tell you, it just shows more and more that we need Jesus more. Turn to him. Put your trust in him. Do not walk away. It's clear that he doesn't want people to undermine, the author of Hebrews doesn't want to undermine the assurance of true believers. If you look at verses 9 through 12 now. And that's the second thing I want you to see. Not only does he warn us about the danger of rejecting Jesus and tell us not to walk away from him, but he also explains to us that God wants believers to experience the full assurance of hope in the Christian life. Look especially at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I had a professor uh, by the name of Ligon Duncan. He was an Old Testament professor at RTS. And he once shared this story about John Newton. John Newton wrote a letter to a friend of his in the year 1808. John Newton, as many of you know, is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. You guys know that? But do you guys also know what else he was before he wrote that song, before he became a Christian? Say that again. That's right. He was captain of a slave ship. John Newton, before he was converted, was a captain of a slave ship. And if you read the biography of John Newton, he did horrible things. And when he wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, he was not being pious or super spiritual. He meant every letter of that word. If you read the biography sometime, I recommend you do. It'll stun you. Well, there's a letter that he wrote 50 years after his conversion. He's been in gospel ministry, he's been fighting against slavery, he's been in preaching the gospel for 35 years, and he's writing a letter to a friend in 1801. He dies in 1807, so this is about six years before he dies. And this is what it says. There have not been two hours in my waking life since the events of 1754 in Africa that I have not thought of what I did. Isn't that interesting? John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, great preacher, he says there's not even been two hours in his whole life that he wouldn't think about all the horrible things and the sinfulness of his estate before incredible God. Can I tell you something? Now, I am not asking our people to live in constant judgment or guilt, but can I tell you something? When we take so lightly our sin, we take so lightly grace. I'll say that again. When we see so lightly our sin before God, then his amazing grace isn't that amazing. Can I tell you one of the problems that we have in America is, is most of us who grew up in the church think we're pretty good. Right? Can I just be honest with you guys? Most of us who grew up in the church, we're like, well, we didn't do all the sins that people talk about. We didn't, you know, sleep around and do all those drugs, right? So that means we're pretty good. Can I tell you that the only way grace is amazing is when you see how desperate your need is 
and you see how radically tragic and evil and disgusting your sin is. And when you make light of those things, you make light of grace. So here's John Newton, um, who, who saw the depths of his sin. And what the author of Hebrews is not writing, he's not writing this passage for someone like John Newton to be like, oh my gosh, am I going to turn away and all this sin. He's writing to, for somebody like John Newton to, to take a hold of the fullness of assurance that even him, a wretch like him, can be saved. And he's writing that to you right now. This author of Hebrews in this passage is writing this to you and says, guys, John Newton, a slave trader is saved and righteous before God, even you. Take a hold of the fullness of the assurance. Because the work of Christ is so much greater. You have the fullness of insurance. If you look in verses 10, you see this outward fruits or evidence of their changed hearts. They labor for the Lord. They love one another. They serve one another. He says, these are all, are all to me evidence of a heart that has been changed. It's all of a heart that knows Jesus is taking full assurance in him. The, commit, the commitment or the, 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 the message to you, the second part, is for those of who know, those who are turning to Jesus, they're saying you have fullness of assurance of salvation. Not because you were good enough, not because you earned it, not because you stayed away from sex and drugs, and not because you went to church a lot, you memorized a lot of scriptures in a, in, when you were a little kid at VBS, and not because of all this stuff, not because you had the right family or you're the right skin color, not because you, you know, dressed the right way, not because you say the right words and you don't cuss. Can I tell you, that you're assured of salvation because Jesus Christ has done all the work necessary for you. That he paid the price and the penalty, received judgment in your place, and his very record of righteousness is now yours. I love in the rest of this chapter, it talks about God swearing an oath. And he tells it to Abraham. And these are people who'd understand all this concept. And he says, he swore by his own name because there's no name higher. You, you know, you, you're like, I swear by the courts of America, or I swear by the Bible, because you swear by higher authorities, right? And he's saying, God is like, there's no name higher than me, so I swear by me. And he's saying, he's just doubly proving the point, guys. God is secure. His word will stand true. He never lies. He doesn't change. His word is true. So when he says he loves you, when he says he redeems you, when he says the blood of Jesus rescues you, it is true now and forevermore. And it changes you. That is your full assurance. Not that you are good enough and you'll stay good enough. But that God is true enough. Amen? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him in that way? Have you made the choice to say, I will place my faith in him. I want to receive that salvation. I know that apart from him, I have no hope of salvation. If you do, do you have, are you taking a hold of that full assurance, seeing the depth of your sin, seeing how amazing grace is, and saying, I am assured. Because can, can I tell you, that kind of confidence changes you. Am I right? This is going to be a, sound like a silly illustration, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> but, like, when I was younger, like, talking to, like, girls was very difficult. Like, I remember distinctly when I was young, I would, like, there was this girl I wanted to ask to a dance one time. 
and I remember getting the phone number from a friend of hers, and I would dial it like 50 times, but I couldn't dial that last number because I was like so nervous and scared to talk to a girl, you know? And I was like, like uh, it was just so nerve-wracking, and I was just never very good at it, and I was like, oh. So, but can I tell you something? that Now that I'm assured that I'm loved and somebody finds me, nobody else can find me attractive, nobody else can find me lovable, but I have somebody who absolutely loves me and still finds me attractive and kind of cool, you know? Now that I have that, I'm like, I always almost laugh at the guys who are nervous around girls. You know, I'm like, ha, 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 you get to be nervous because I'm just so cool now because I don't care. I could care less. I might be a loser, but somebody loves me and somebody thinks I'm pretty cool. So all you guys who are so nervous about around girls and like trying to be cool, I'm like, I don't have to be cool anymore. I'm good. I'm confident. Can I tell you that when you're known that you're fully assured, fully confident, fully loved, you can't lose it. It changes the way you live boldly in life, doesn't it? It changes the way you approach anything. Live fully assured in your salvation and in your love. Amen? Let's pray.